This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we'll have Tommy's interview with community activist Barry Axius about the protests in Sacramento over the shooting of Stefan Clark. Then later, we'll be talking to Anna Marie Cox about the brand new season of With Friends Like These. We'll be in Florida later this week. There are still some tickets available. One or two. Just one or two for Clearwater, for Miami. Miami. And for Orlando. Listen. You're on the fence about coming to Love It or Leave It in Miami. I want you to know that if you're worried about being able to get good seats, put that worry out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> What's in the news, John? <laughs> anyway, the news. We're recording this, by the way. I should just talk about the elephant in the room. We're recording this on Monday evening. It's an experiment to see what it would be like to discover we don't like recording on Monday evenings. <laughs> I'm having a great time. So far, yeah, I, I Love It has been in a fit today. I don't know about this evening recording. It's been hanging over my head. It cast a pall over the whole day. Anyway, let's talk about the news. So we haven't had a full-blown Trump Twitter meltdown in a while. But we were treated to one on Easter Sunday that has basically lasted through right before we started this podcast. He was still fucking tweeting about immigration. Hey, John. A couple minutes ago. Hey, John. Yes, John. And nominations. Hey, John. Have you heard the good news? That's an, an Easter, an Easter thing. Trump a, is tweeting. Get, is can the you, Chris, can you insert a crickets uh, after that joke? <laughs> Thank you. So in this tweet storm that started on Easter, Trump attacked some of his old favorites. You got Amazon, the FBI, the Department of Justice, CNN, MSNBC. <laughs> um, but the real focus was immigration. It seems as if the president of the United States was triggered by a Fox and Friends segment about hundreds of people from Central America who are traveling through Mexico to seek asylum in the United States. Trump said they're coming to take advantage of DACA, which is extra stupid <laughs> so because dumb. A, he canceled DACA, and B, DACA only applies to the children of immigrants who've been here since 2007. He was uh, confronted with this uh, conundrum today during the Easter egg roll when CNN's Jim Acosta yelled to him, but Mr. President, didn't you kill DACA? And then Trump just stared at him and didn't say anything. So why is Trump suddenly so upset about immigration? I mean, there's lots of Fox and Friends segments. Usually they lead him to tweet something and then he moves on. But this has really stuck with him now for 48 Mm -hmm. hours. Yeah. I mean, well, we should. The piece in question was about a caravan of of folks from Central America, most of them from Honduras, Mm. with a group called People Without Borders going north uh, through Central America. It's an annual journey. This happens every year. It's raising awareness about people who are are seeking asylum from government oppression or a horrible crime, mostly from organized crime. And so Fox and Friends, rather than calling these people uh, asylum seekers, call them a small army of migrants marching towards the United States. So the, the, that is starts with just horrific racist framing. They accuse the Mexican government of being complicit in this. What this stems from, though, is, a, is seemingly a concerted effort from the high priestess on down of the MAGA movement, Ann Coulter, Sean Hannity, Gene Pirro, Lou Dobbs, <laughs> to attack him on immigration because he has not yet built a wall because he's an idiot and doesn't know how to legislate and get anything out of Congress, and they rolled him in the omnibus bill. I mean, let, yeah, let's unpack that. Let's, let's start with the high priestess of the MAGA movement because she is not too happy. Ann Coulter sat down with uh, Frank Bruni of the New York Times for an interview where she basically said that Trump not building the wall would be more of a betrayal than implementing the principles of the Communist Manifesto. (laughs) Um, She said that there's a new category of voters now called former Trumpers. 
and this should be terrifying to the president. She's now counting herself almost as a former Trumper unless he surprises her and builds the wall. The conundrum, of course, is that he probably will not be able to build the wall. Love it. What do you think? It's interesting. (laughs) So, first of all, it's always surprising to see what, like, so when Ann Coulter turns her sort of evil mechanical mind towards attacking someone we disagree with, it's interesting to see because, oh, she is good at this, right? She is good at this. Like, even just saying there's a new category of people, former Trump, it's, it's a persuasive, interesting way of framing things. I, you know, Trump to me, I think there's two things going on. I think one, all this news about people being, angry about him that immigration has clearly gone to him it got to him before it's why he threatened to veto the omnibus was in part because you know the huckabees of the world were angry at him about the wall funding so he was definitely looking for something to latch onto. he also is very good about attaching himself to kind of bite-sized versions of giant controversies in part because he knows it's effective and partly also that's the biggest amount of information he can process so this is one of those great perfectly built Trump things, right? It's easily understandable. Here are these people. They're coming towards him. I'm trying to stop him. Scary image. Scary image. And so it's a place for him to reassert himself with these hardliners and remind them that he's on their side. And so he sees no downside to it. So he's enjoying it. And by the way, it's not like (laughs) it's not like he's this is not an example where it's like he just passed a corporate tax bill and now he's screwing up his message or he just gave a State of the Union where he didn't shit himself. So now he's stepping out his message. It's been basically two weeks of Mueller and Stormy Daniels. So whatever, let it rip, you know, rage away. You know, it's interesting, though. It's this would have been the perfect story for Trump, the 2011 leader of the birther movement as he is outside of government, outside of politics, and just someone tweeting and yelling about everything. Yeah. You can see the frustration where now he's president of the United States. And all he can do is he can talk about the story, and then he's like, Congress, act! Build wall! DACA canceled! Like, he doesn't have any levers to pull because he is not very good at this job. I mean, he, he had a chance... To build the wall. At one point, Chuck Schumer put the fucking wall on the table if all Trump was willing to do was to offer the Dreamers a path to citizenship. And he didn't take it because Stephen Miller told him, no, 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 that deal's not good enough. We need cuts to legal immigration in addition to getting the wall. You can't just have the wall. And because he scuttled that deal, because Trump said no, now he's come to realize He's never getting the wall because he doesn't have the votes in Congress to get the wall. And he thinks that the military is going to do it on their own. And so you got Defense Secretary Jim Mattis drawing up all kinds of options for him, basically just to placate him because the Pentagon can't do this on their own, right? I I don't even accept that excuse that, oh, he didn't want to do the deal because Stephen Miller talked him out of it. The thing that you hear from all these stories about what it's like to be in this White House is ultimately Trump is extremely indecisive. Yeah. And deciding to make a deal like I, I want to come back to it. when he was talking about the omnibus, he made a, a snarky remark about Obama. He said Obama even signed a bigger one. And then he added a sentence, which was and I bet he wasn't too happy about it. And it's the only time I've ever seen Donald Trump acknowledge the fact that Barack Obama has an interior life. But also <laughs> but even putting that aside. It's a reminder of the fact that he's facing these presidential decisions and deciding to say to screw Stephen Miller, go against Paul Ryan, go to Chuck Schumer and say, I'll give you DACA. You give me 25 billion. It's the decision only a president can make. There's no one who's going to tell him yes or no. It's a final moment where it comes to him. And I don't think he's up for it. I don't think I don't think in that moment he can make that kind of a deal. Just real quick on the on the high priestess. Um, Trump's immig- immigration plans were basically plagiarized from her book, which was called Adios America, the left's plan to turn our country into a third world hellhole. Catchy title. Yeah. She is vile. She peddles hate for a living. But you have to admit, she's playing Trump brilliantly here. She knows what the leverage is. She knows how to play him. She knows how to play the New York Times. The article was a little chummy for my taste. And like when she comes out and says, well, we love Trump because he doesn't care about uh, the opinions of Manhattan sophisticates as a new Canaan High School and Cornell University grad currently living in New York, I nearly threw up onto the keyboard of my laptop but to your point like she like these people are coming at him hard and he is now in charge and he is no more leverage anywhere legislatively and, and, and paul ryan ignored him everyone ignored him but it is true that he has kind of refused to do the things he does seem to be kind of captured by the paul ryans that tell him the things he cannot do in a way that ann coulter 
thought he might be the one person who wouldn't be captured by that group. I think she said Trump could sell Trump products from the Oval Office if he got the wall built. Like they literally care about nothing else. Uh, And because he's failed to do that central promise, they're losing these. And he's getting that. I mean, the Washington Post said he was privately grousing that his supporters are going to start getting pissed Mm -hmm. um, that he didn't build the wall. A bunch of his guests at Mar-a-Lago brought it up over the weekend. Like you said, Tommy Janine Pirro, Sean Hannity, former Fox executive Bill Shine was there. (laughs) But just just pause for a moment and just recognize that. What you just said is very terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I do not that. What a horrible cocktail party. Those are the people that are giving him advice just now. Just standing in the corner just, with a drink being like, there is no one here I want to talk to. The also, movement is so lame. The, oh, my God. I hang out those people. I, I don't want to leave this person off, though. Yeah. The, the Daily Beast has a fantastic story about Lou Dobbs <laughs> and how he was... He's been on speakerphone in the Oval Office during meetings because this is a great life. What sets Dobbs apart is the degree to which the president views him as a political and populism godfather, the MAGA Socrates to Trump's Plato. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, let's be, let's just be clear for a second. No one in history has ever looked up to Lou Dobbs. I mean, he was like an also-ran CNN idiot. He was a birther. Didn't he, was, he leave? He, le- he, he, he left during the doc. CNN. He left the doc during the he, during the dot com bubble. He ran space dot com. That was like one of the things he did. And then now he's relegated to Fox Business, right. which is like the triple A ball of, of Fox. Right, where he yeah. floats trial balloons like the U.S. Marshals should arrest Obama if he criticizes Trump because that's not uh, appropriate. Like he's just some crazy old lunatic who gets patched into Oval Office phone calls. Yeah. It does seem pretty clear, though, that we are going to, because this is what the base, this is what gets the base up in the morning, uh, at least the MAGA base and Ann Coulter and those people, that all of these candidates... Republican candidates are going to run on immigration and be talking about immigration and trying to find, not talk about the policy, but trying to find these stories, you know, these vivid stories of caravans or MS-13 or gangs, and they want to run on this from now until November. And I guess the question is, what do Democrats do? What happens with DACA? There's a Bloomberg story today. Jackie Rosen in Nevada said she's discussing it in her race every day. Um, obviously, there's a big population of dreamers in Nevada. Ted Cruz, on the other hand, in Texas, is also discussing it in his race every day, thinking that it will energize his base to talk about how he stood against it. So uh, what do you guys think? Proposing that we use military funds, take away military funds to build the wall, that ad writes itself. Like, Imagine images of guns in body armor and tanks being literally ripped out of the hands of U.S. service members. The fact that they think that immigration is a more salient issue for their racist base is instructive. I, I would like to see Democrats use that to fight on. The other thing, their favorite anecdote is the AP reported that some people close to Trump uh, suggested creating a GoFundMe for the wall, which is just <laughs> so perfectly stupid. I wish Dan were here today to, to talk more about it. <laughs> Go for it, guys. But like, you know, I, I think this is an issue where like DACA is a great thing for Democrats to talk about because it is such a wildly popular issue. But I do think there is some risk more broadly for Democrats on immigration. You know, I, I, I think we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it when we're talking about immigration. I don't know that I would make that the heart of what we're talking about right now. I'm much more interested, you know, Jonathan Chait wrote this piece about corruption. I don't know if I'd make corruption the centerpiece of it versus healthcare, the economy, whatever. But I certainly don't think we should be afraid of saying that Donald Trump made a whole bunch of promises on immigration, couldn't keep a single one of them, refused to help these kids, didn't get his wall, didn't get anything done, didn't solve a compromise, didn't address the problem, and that's it. I mean, I don't know how much more complicated yeah, I mean, it needs to be than that. There's a whole bunch of things Democratic candidates are going to talk about. Yeah. I think that there's a reason that helping the dreamers polls at 70, 80, 90%. And Democrats can feel confident going out there, even if you are running in a state that doesn't have a big dreamer population, saying young people who are here, who are brought here through no fault of their own, who are working, who are in college, who are studying, they deserve to have a chance to become U.S. citizens, and they deserve not to be deported back to countries that they've never lived in before. I think that is a fairly popular message, and I don't think anyone should feel afraid of it. Yeah, You're I right. Like, that. Should you run on health care? Should you run on corruption? Yeah, of course. You should, you should emphasize all those things. I mean, I think the corruption issue is interesting because I, I just think it leaves something off. I think we should talk about Trump's corruption and the administration's corruption 
all day long, but we need to make sure every time we talk about it, we connect it to those policies that are actually affecting people's lives. So yeah, if you're yeah. if you're ta- you, you connect it to healthcare, you connect yeah. it to tax cuts, you connect right. it to all these things that are happening. You know, he's yeah, he's doing this for him. Here's how it's hurting you. Right, like Scott Pruitt is in a you know in a house for fifty dollars a month or whatever. Yeah, he's paying he's and, paying for his room with a subway club card. And, meanwhile, the <laughs> and meanwhile the lobbyist whose house that he's in that he's renting from got their project Getting approved at the deals. EPA, yeah. and that's screwing people over. That you have to finish drawing the line. I know it's like a twelfth well, order political issue, but again and again and again, Mexico is like our biggest trading partner they're a close ally in security and economic and cultural ways he's just rupturing the relationship day after day tweet after tweet i mean i thought jared fixed it the foreign minister had to respond that like this inaccurate news report should not serve to question the cooperation between the two countries it's a big deal to keep kicking allies in the teeth for no reason when you're wrong and for naked political purposes i think that's a big save the world point no i think it's a big (laughs) it's a it's a big issue because someday down the line we are going to need allies to work with us on something that has to do with the security of the american people the safety of the american people and at some point they're going to say fuck off because we have been treated so badly by your president you're starting to see in the political system because they they're running against him now and that's not just like a foreign policy nerd point that's gonna hit people at home sort of point and also, we're just so sort of enmeshed in the sort of the Trump drama. DACA is incredibly important. Immigration is a huge and growing problem that needs to be addressed. The fact that we have millions and millions of people who have to live in the shadows in this country because we haven't given them any kind of path to legalization is a huge problem, right? There are huge immigration problems we need to address that we've been trying to address for basically 30 years. And now this debate has been reduced to border wall versus DACA kids, and we can't even get that piece of it done. Yeah, and that that's a good point, is that it is that is way too small of a debate on immigration. Every Democrat should not be also not be afraid of saying our immigration system is badly broken and it has been for a long time and we need to fix it somehow. And yep. that includes DACA, that includes legal immigration, that includes border security, it includes like it, all kinds of interior enforcement and what the fuck ICE is doing, which is awful. And, There's a whole bunch of things. And by the way, figuring out a way to talk about border security confidently in a way that doesn't abandon the core compassion and principles of Democrats, right? I think right now, Democrats are skittish to even talk about border security at all because it's become a Trump issue. But border security is going to be part of any answer to this. And so finding a new way has of talk- to be has to be and finding a new way to talk about this where we are extremely critical of ICE. We're extremely critical of policies that rip family apart. Well, fi- and by the way, recognize that there is an argument about American workers who feel as though immigration doesn't help them. Like finding ways at that to talk about immigration as a way of talking about how to help American workers, undocumented people, securing the border, getting all of that into a language that doesn't alienate Democrats who are afraid of people capitulating to Trump, I think is a really hard problem. And and good luck to the 2020 Democrats figuring it out. Did you see that they floated uh, Don King to run Customs and Border Patrol? Honestly, you we, believe me for a second. <laughs> no, I was about to say, like, Tommy's I don't face, know. I swear, Tommy's I didn't face know. seemed very serious. I almost, yeah. Why is that? I mean, I really think, I was joking over the weekend about Lou Dobbs becoming the next Treasury Secretary, and that <laughs> seems very plausible. Uh, stop, stop. Steve Mnookin does not seem like he's a good fit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so thank you to Fox and Friends for uh, spinning up the president on that. That's great. Let's talk about another propaganda outlet, Sinclair brought Broadcasting. Over the weekend, an editor at Deadspin put together a supercut where dozens of local anchors at news stations owned by Sinclair gave the exact same speech that warned viewers about fake news and the danger of certain journalists using their platforms to push their own personal bias. The anchors were ordered to read the speech by Sinclair, and apparently a lot of Sinclair employees were pretty upset. How worrisome is this guys it looked pretty scary very worrisome i mean look this is a perfect segue propaganda works even on our own presidents you know what i mean like fox news is generating these massive controversies when you have sinclair which has either 173 193 television stations depending on which outlet you're reading that is a big deal and so when you have these when you have sinclair forcing its anchors to read a script that undercuts trust in news generally i think that's enormously problematic Yeah, it's sort of like a third phase of what's happened. So there was the rise of Fox News, and that happened in plain sight. It grew during the Clinton administration and became a kind of bulwark against the the mainstream media. It was a right-wing alternative. And then you have this second phase of, of it now becoming something that is sort of weaponized on Facebook. Sinclair, what National Enquirer is doing, they are buying up local stations. They are putting things on supermarket shelves, and it all is the kind of thing that flies 
under the radar of journalists, mm-hmm. under the radar of major publications, under the radar of the national conversation. Yeah. So thank God for Deadspin, right? right. Didn't expect them to call a foul yeah. on this one. <laughs> and the other part of this is, I think it's also extremely dangerous in how it's hidden. Like you turn on Fox News, Fox News viewers know it's conservative. Liberals know. We all know what it is. You listen to Pod Save America, you know what you're getting. You know exactly what you're getting. You know exactly what you're getting. You're getting this. <laughs> uh, but uh, these things, they're stuck between weather and sports. It's, or insidi- it's very, it's very insidious. insidious. And it's um, Feels and, real. And uh, the other thing is, too, local news has a conservative bias in that the medium of conservative news, it, it leans towards covering local crime. It leans towards a conservative narrative you never you never turn on local news and it's like systemic poverty in our city no it's much more like this is the crime that happened here's who did the crime here's who fought the crime here's what happened with the fire it's very much based on individual acts and individual and crimes. fear and you should fear. be you should be scared of this new disease that we can't figure out you should be scared of this you should be scared of that which plays right into the trump worldview and this and in this little psa that they forced everyone to, to read is wedged up against a must-run segment by former Trump aide Boris Epstein, who is too stupid to work in Trump's White House surrogate operation. So he got booted out and then got hired by Sinclair to essentially produce propaganda. So they're taking over the whole broadcast. The Boris Epstein ones are really... You should check one out. Go Google one. Don't watch more than the whole... You don't have to watch the whole thing. It's fascinating, too, because he is marble-mouthed and non-charismatic. He could not be on television but for the favoritism and corporatism and the need to get a Trump acolyte into this role, which is very banana republic. It's very, yeah. very developing. Yeah. Like it's very much like like a crony getting a guy in who shouldn't be on television because they just needed that guy in that spot. The other thing that's scary is that they uh, they did a study of Sinclair stations versus other stations and Sinclair stations are starting to cover national politics more and more and less local news. Mm -hmm. And that's how you sort of know. And and the national politics they're covering, of course, the stories they're choosing are stories that have a conservative bent to them. So it is a history of this. Again, in some ways, it is more insidious than what Fox is doing because by now everyone knows Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and all these people. They know what they're all about. And when you just see these anchors that you've known and trusted for a long time, and you don't pay a ton of attention to politics and you just hear them talking about stuff, you're more likely to trust them and believe what they're saying. Thanks, Rick. What a great weather report. Now for an update, put on the hat. <laughs> put that fucking hat on your goddamn head or we will come to your fucking house. <laughs> put on that mat. Get it on. We're all wearing it. Uh, with, with just one other point about this. That's at the anchor. That's the final stage. Uh, that's phase four. And the, uh, no, but one other piece of this is it's part of a larger story of consolidation. You know, Sinclair has been able to scoop up uh, stations in part because of Agit Pie and what's been going on at the FCC. We've also seen hedge funds picking off local newspapers and then shrinking down their newsrooms. So Sinclair covering more national news is actually something a lot of local papers are doing. We're seeing local coverage getting worse and worse, which means state houses governors are under much less scrutiny and much more corruption is going to go unchecked. So I feel like all of this is part of consolidation in the media. Some of the problem is that it's consolidated for ideological purposes, but there's a larger problem of just consolidation leading to cost cutting and nationalization of news and just a lack of coverage of important things in local places. That is true. That is 100% true. But Sinclair is particularly brazen and insidious. Yeah, I agree. In, In 2004, they were trying to force 62 TV stations to run Basically, a a hit job documentary on John Kerry and his anti-war activities that, because it was exposed, I don't believe ever ran, Mm. but it was like agitprop. Yeah. So these guys don't give a shit about the attention uh, that's being paid to them yet. Hopefully, we can hurt them financially. Yeah, so what can we do? Number one, obviously, we are going to buy up a ton of local news stations here at Crooked Media. Yep. So that, that should fix that. I just got one with, on the way to work. Did I miss a meeting? <laughs> <laughs> I thought... Um, so, so here's a few things. Pivoting. Congressional candidate Amy McGrath in Kentucky is no longer running ads on the Sinclair-owned television station in her district. You know, like the principle there, but I'm not sure that's that effective. This makes me nervous <laughs> in the same way. Um, I just think she're, she's not getting her message out as well. <laughs> this makes me nervous in the same way. It makes me nervous when people, when a bunch of liberals talk about deleting Facebook. Yeah. It's like if a bunch of liberals delete Facebook, there's still a billion people on Facebook and then they're not getting anything from us. So I worry about this a little bit, but I don't know. 
yeah, she, boycotts have been effective. Look, at there's three local news stations in her district in Kentucky or four. She's just getting like a third or a quarter of less ads. You know, she's it's so that's tough. But yeah, I, I guess that I would say I'm less interested in Democrats deciding to not reach Sinclair viewers than I am about maybe a larger campaign to make sure companies don't advertise yeah. on Sinclair. That, to me, makes more sense. I mean, I, And also I, some yeah. pressure on the local stations themselves. I, I read right before we started that uh, the Madison, Wisconsin station, Sinclair station, tweeted that we did not run the piece. We would not read the script. Good for that. And I wonder how many... And now, it's not a position that I think a lot of individual journalists and anchors at these stations can take on their own because they have contracts and, you know, they could be fired. But together as a as an entire station banding together you might be able to do that yeah and so i do think unions would be helpful here i was right exactly and i do think you know viewers like you said viewers can put pressure on advertisers they can call their local station so there are you know there are avenues there speaking of boycotts advertisers are fleeing from esteemed journalist laura ingram show as she takes a week-long break from the network advertisers have been pulling out ever since she mocked David Hogg, a 17-year-old school shooting survivor for not getting into his top college. Very classy. What do you guys think about this boycott? You know, Brian Stelter at CNN this weekend said, uh, I'm personally pretty wary of this. I think it's dangerous. My view is, let's not shut down anyone's right to speak. Let's meet their comments with more speech. Come on, Brian. The, the First Amendment does not protect your ability to host a TV show. It says the <laughs> government can't abridge your right to free speech. I think consumers should absolutely vote with their wallet. Yeah, so my, my, companies, I mean, companies should have a conscience. My view Full on stop. this is, if we lost a bunch of advertisers on Pod Save America, I wouldn't think, who are these angry mobs that are shutting down our right to free speech? I'd say, damn, what did we say that was so bad that we lost these advertisers? Maybe we should figure out how to apologize Must and get them person. back. Right? Like I that would be my I, first thought. I don't know if I agree. I think we just take the head. The, uh, uh, <laughs> I agree in this case. I think that's right. I think. It's ridiculous to say that a group of people coming together to say Laura Ingram's comments are beyond the pale and we think companies shouldn't support that and getting those companies to withdraw, that is that is free speech at work. That's how it all works. Obviously, this is not a First Amendment issue. It is a free speech issue. That is true. Boycotts are about saying we don't want to hear your kind of speech. That being said, that's a good thing. right? Boycotts that's part- are speech. Right. It's, a, it's speech fighting speech. But could there be examples where boycotts where, you know, you end up with a situation where liberals are saying we can't support any of this and then conservatives saying we can't support any of this. And then you end up with a situation where companies just say, you know what, we don't advertise on anything political because we don't want that kind of heat. And then all of a sudden there's, you know, less support for political but, conversation. But, but here's the thing. The, the but problem it's a market like, thing. Our political half-life in, in, in remembering news is like eight seconds. Like someone pointed out, this out on Twitter. Before the Iraq War, Republicans were encouraging us all to boycott the country of France because they didn't support uh, the worst war in our fucking history. So, like, I- I'm totally fine with the tit-for-tat nature of boycotts. I, I also think this, yeah. is, this is, like, capitalism at work here. At some point, if companies all decide to do a blanket, like, we're not going to advertise on political shows anymore, some company is going to be like, you know what? There's a whole audience out there that's listening to those political right. shows that probably fits with the audience that would actually buy our product as well or our service. So we're going to break that rule and go do it. I just always think that when people make the argument that Brian Stelter made that it's inappropriate because the thing they're worrying about is not happening. What we do have are heinous people going on television attacking children, and we have consumers saying, please don't support this. That seems pretty good to me. They're worried about what if this leads down a path where there's so many boycotts and it's a, but that's not what's happening. Where yeah, the, the, sy- the system happen. of boycotts seems to be quite, I don't know, cool. I mean, like Alex <laughs> Jones makes what? Some, I read somewhere $50 million a year. What? Peddling the most uh. heinous, <laughs> most crazy conspiracy theories. Don't go there with that joke. <laughs> Say more about that. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, what are some of his techniques? <laughs> God damn it. He says like the most like, you know, he he's someone who's had, talked about Sandy Hook as a hoax. He's talked about, know, yeah. you know, the Parkland students being crisis actors. I mean, there are truly vile, horrific people out there. And because of the nature of the Internet these days, people are more likely to find and believe these types of conspiracies. So I'd like to see a whole lot of voting with your pocketbook, if yeah. possible. Well, now a word from our sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back with, with Tommy's interview with community activist Barry Axius. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. 
It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. With me today is Barry Axius. He is a Sacramento-based community activist and the founder of Voice of the Youth, which is a mentorship program for young people in Sacramento. Barry, thank you so much for talking with us today. (laughs) You got my name right. Thank you. Well, we're very grateful to you. So Stefan Clark was killed by police last month. He was 22 years old. He's a father of two. A recent autopsy showed that he was shot eight times, mostly in his back. Police said he was armed. He was not. You are one of many people in Sacramento demanding justice. What does getting justice for Stefan and his family mean for you? That's huge. I mean, getting justice actually, it sets a real, I feel, uh, move that can kind of have a ripple effect nationally if there's this big high profile case and we have this young man that gets justice. I mean, I think that it will actually stop a lot of the police killing because I think what happens with these police killings, the reason why we have so many so often is because no one is held accountable. Mm -hmm. No one is challenged. No one has ever been convicted. I think you only have pretty much one conviction with the Walter Scott case. And in that situation with Walter Scott, the officer, I mean, I, I want to believe there was a mistrial and they had to kind of do some other stuff. And finally he pleaded guilty or something to that nature. But The process of getting conviction is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And there have been some high profile cases where you look at the evidence from my standpoint or anyone else who watches this. There's no way that this officer is getting away with it. But shoot, nine times out of 10, I mean, they always get away with it. So what this is going to do, I think, is going to show a commitment to the community of Sacramento that we're not going to tolerate racist police. We're not going to tolerate police corruption. We're not going to tolerate folks that are supposed to protect and serve abusing their power and using excessive force when it's unnecessary. So I look at this as a national moment that all eyes are looking at Sacramento and we have an opportunity to to show the world this is how it's supposed to be done. Barry, you you were at a, a town hall meeting in Sacramento at Sacramento City Hall and you encouraged folks there to point their cell phones at the mayor in the city council and ask a pretty simple question. Does this look like a gun to you? You're, you're echoing the claim by police that Stephon Clark was armed when he was not. He was holding a cell phone. Has anyone, the police, the politicians, actually answered that question? How does a, a cell phone look like a gun in this situation? I think no one's answered some foolish uh, rhetoric that police made up to cover up. The bottom line is this. Police have so far often said things to us that have been lies and we just kind of agree with it because they're the police. Right. Right. And that whole theory of I feared for my life. He had a gun or he had something that looked like a gun or whatever else they like to do is kind of creates that cover up. Just think about it. Listen to the video. Um, it says hands up, gun, gun, gun. 
automatically that creates that narrative that, whoa, this guy had a gun. That's why he got killed. And then when you find out the reality was he didn't have anything. And so when I said that moment, I just wanted to clearly have the uh, council look at what we are saying. Stop pretending that we're idiots. There's no way that this cell phone looks like a gun. That's a lie. And I don't know what kind of state of mind. I'm really kind of confused what those officers were thinking at that moment. If they were just amped up and they just decided that they say they wanted us to kill a moving target, which was a black man. It still kind of, to me, uh, baffles me because everyone wants to make this argument that he was doing something wrong. And let's say if he wasn't content to to not create another argument. So you're telling me now that a uh, misdemeanor is due for an execution. So it almost tells me the value of black lives is almost minimum to nothing. You should not be executed for a a misdemeanor defense if that's what he did. And from all likeliness, he probably didn't do anything from the video. What I saw is a young man going to his home and knocking on his grandparents door and getting killed with a beret of bullets, got executed at his own uh, parents house. So, I mean, this wasn't the first time you've you've talked about these issues in, in 2014 oh. after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. You said that Sacramento is one national moment away from being Ferguson. What did you mean by that? You are doing your homework. I like that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, because I think that so many times we try to pretend that what is now is something that just happened. Mm-hmm. Like for some, some instance, people will be like, the racial incidents that we're having, we're looking at Donald Trump. It's like, oh, my goodness, Donald Trump recreated racism. No, right. America has a lineage of racism. That's why when guys or, or things like this happens in, in our communities, we were up in arms because we don't want to look at face the reality of what we live in and what black people live in and exist in is this reality of police have hunted us down for several years, excuse me, centuries, mm-hmm. historically. Think about it. The origin of police are slave catchers, right? It wasn't that they came from a a community need. They were catching slaves. So when you're indoctrinated in that type of um, hatred, it only kind of parallels through all of the other scopes of history when you look at police and how they've treated a black community. It's never been a cohesive relationship. I don't know where anyone can kind of line that up. It's always been us against them. So in 2014, when I sat there and I just kind of gave some some insight to our folks in the city hall so we could be because Sacramento likes to play this idea of progression and we want to be this progressive city. I said, well, we have the opportunity to do something to prevent a tragic incident and moment that we're having currently with Stephon Clark. But it fell on deaf ears. 2016, Joseph Mann came. And now here we are in 2018, a bigger story than the Joseph Mann story. So it was like, Harry Sacramento, we have a problem. I know that you don't want to deal with the problem, but this is going to blow over. There's corruption in our police departments. There's racism in our police department. There's total bias in our police departments. And I think that folks don't want to buy into that reality because we want to assume that these police are um, above the law, that they can make right decisions. But with all of the constant mistakes, mistakes that they make. And I don't even think they're mistakes. I think that they feel like since I am protected by the police bill of rights, since I'm protected by the union, and since I have a DA that could care two lesses of prosecuting us or bringing up charges, mm-hmm. we'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you make the point that this is not new and it's systemic. I mean, when you think Tamir Rice, Mike Brown, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling, Stephon Clark. The list goes on is on and on and on. And so my thing was, you think that we are going to be exempt from this moment. We've got every major city, a rural city in America going through this trial and tribulation. So we're going to pretend that Sacramento has no issue. I think that was pompous. It was very arrogant for individuals uh, in the city council to believe that they did some things, but they didn't do a maximum amount of things to protect people. Because if you think about it, after I had said that in 2014, 2015, we've had literally, I want to believe, 22 shootings of unarmed folk by the police. And we've had not one conviction, no prosecution. So you're trying to tell me that all these people that got killed, they were all justified? That to me is kind of weird. Yeah. What changes do you want the government to make at the federal or state level to to stop the police from killing unarmed African-Americans mostly? 
Well, first of all, the unfortunate thing is a lot of the KKK members who hung up their hoods, they, they took badges. That's facts. Um, they only did they take badges. They, they're, they're in office. So, you know, the lineage of systemic racism and uh, institutional racism is so far stretched into so many different areas. But because we do have an opportunity since we know the hat is out of the bag, I feel like, one, the police bill of rights needs to be dismantled and we need to conditionally as a community look into some of those things to kind of process how much power these police do have. The police is such a militarized force nowadays. These uh protests that we've been having, it's literally an army against civilians with nothing except their voices, their hearts and their courage. So you, I definitely feel that we don't need uh, militarized peace uh, police officers moving in and roaming our streets, as well as I think there should be mandatory drug testing um, when a firearm is, is let go, non-lethal or, or lethal. I believe that when we hear about these incidents, we need to know what the state of mind our police officers are in. There is so much abuse our police officers uh, deal with as far as their own self and and kind of implementing the abuse that they've done with their spouse. I mean, if you do the research, there's a lot of police officers in rehabs. There's a lot of police officers that have been charged with domestic violence. There's a lot of police officers that have actually done drugs, namely one steroid. So I can't just sit there and say, oh. Well, these guys that work these long hours, some underpaid, right? And they deal with these traumatic, not going to sit there and say these f folks don't deal with trauma, but they deal with traumatic incidents on a daily that you're trying to tell me that they don't need to be drug tested. They don't need to get checked or as well as a psych eval. I think that it needs to be annual. Find out what their mindset is at. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different components, but I definitely believe state regulations with the uh, Bill of Rights, as well as looking into the police union, it's going to have to happen at the state level, the local level. We can do so much. I understand that they want to try to process this thing as, hey, you guys have a black police chief, but he's a black face and a white institution. And he's just come on and he's been there for about seven months. So the corruption that he's and the racism that he's just indoctrinated himself in is something that's going to take longer than a few months months to kind of uh, clean out and with the police union being so strong you got these police officers that literally can do so much and they will be supported what is it like for the kids you work with who grow up in sacramento who after an incident like this look at the police not as protectors but someone that is a threat to them what is it like growing up fearing the people who are supposed to protect you i mean it gives you an attitude that i don't like you i hate you I mean, even if I don't know you, you have a badge. I just don't like you. It's funny because what happens is I think police have a great relationship with a lot of black uh, youth when it's easy, when it's time to come on, bring a bicycle, when it's time to come in, shoot basketball, when it's time to kind of play that role because that young person isn't the aggressor yet. But it seems like something is lost in the equation when that young person gets of age. Now there's no longer those moments where you see that police officer taking the time to kind of discuss or talk or or just, you know, what I'm saying understanding where this young person is. It's almost like shoot to kill. And I think that's deafening and it's defining on how the stereotypes and the bias that they have. It creates this complication in a relationship where these police officers are saying to themselves that we want to have this this strong relationship with a community. But then at every time where a moment gets aggressive or a moment becomes intense, you barely have police officers not falling back and, and, and doing things the right way. You constantly have this aggression that the police officers take as far as with that aggressor. So when you have two aggressive folks going at each other, it's a recipe for disaster. So I look at policing. Of course, there has to be a whole change of training that has to go involved. But I don't even think training is enough because I think that these guys, they come from different places. I mean, you got a guy that comes from Tennessee to work in Sacramento. You don't know the culture of Sacramento. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You know the culture of Tennessee. And however they treat or deem black people in Tennessee, how y'all do stuff may not be the way Sacramento does stuff. So you got that attitude coming to Sacramento and it kind of creates that unfair and, and toxic atmosphere that kind of creates moments like Stephon Clark. Yeah. So after the Parkland shooting, there's been this intense focus on on the national epidemic of gun violence. There have been marches. They've been very active in the media. How do activists make sure that the issue of police shootings are part of this conversation and that we're being honest about the role that race plays in the killing of these African-American men? We don't ever want to be honest by race, man. We don't. 
Come on. It's, 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 it's this yeah. whole thing is documented by white privilege and white privilege matters in America. Black lives don't. I mean, I, I, I salute those young warriors. Hey, salute. But we have been talking about gun violence, whether it's community gun violence, whether it's, you know, police gun violence in the black communities for decades. And we still have kind of gotten that uh, you guys will be all right. This is what we've gotten. We've gotten black on black crime. That's the narrative we've got. Well, what about black on black crime? There's no such thing. I'm going to clear that out. There's no such thing as black on black crime because we never say white on white crime. We never say Asian on Asian crime. The only thing about it is creates a narrative, an unfair narrative that black people are the only people killing each other. Right. But everybody does that. You, you could do the records and you could do the data on that, that folks feel more comfortable taking each other out that they know. So this thing that these young people are doing as as great as it may be nationally. Well, why aren't we getting that support when it comes to black people getting killed by police? And why is it the simple fact when people go out there and protest now they're thugs they're rioters they're they're anti-american and they're everything else under the sun why don't we get that kind of press to show our plight of trying to make change why is it always that it's us evil uncharacteristic un-american and uncivil people roaming the streets trying to disrespect police we would not be in the streets if police didn't kill black people we would not be in the streets if police who kill black people got convicted I mean, this has been an American problem. And if you want to sit there and kind of minimize the fact that we're living in this this era where in 2018, we're still talking about race. We're still talking about police brutality, all these things that my ancestors lived through and had fought and where it was like pretty much legal at one particular time to kill black people. And now it's deemed illegal, but it's still legally happening. It frustrates me because you can have a white male kill 17 people come out and get handcuffed and even officers be afraid be afraid to go and arrest him and he's in jail he's going to get his due process he's going to get his day in court and a black person can wear a hoodie a black person can have skittles a black person can have a fake gun a black person can um drink in arizona right and be in the wrong neighborhood go for their license sell cds whatever be with their family whatever knock on the door to ask for help and they still get executed by police yeah that that to me my friend is absolute craziness and if anybody who because i'm on twitter and i i constantly get these these racist rogues coming in and trying to put a spin on the stefan clark case and when people sit there and tell me that he was breaking the law it just tells me how demonic and how sick and how insane and how uncompassionate folks are with black lives when it pertains to a young man who got killed if he was doing a crime it would have been a misdemeanor so the volume of us having to change the idea of how people look at black folks is we need a conviction that's the only way police need to start being charged and they need to be held accountable that's the only way ideas and folks will stop uh, using the law on their side and creating these heinous acts. So since this horrific shooting, you and Black Lives Matter and a whole bunch of protesters in Sacramento have done a really incredible job of of keeping this story in the news, uh, raising awareness, including by you know stopping traffic or preventing an NBA game from happening. What else should we expect to see out of Sacramento to keep awareness up? And, and how can people listening help you guys push to get the justice you're looking for? Well, I think the NBA one was the best one. I think that was an an epic historical moment that I feel that somebody will copycat eventually. And I think that folks are going to pay attention. And I think we'll be talking about this from years to come because what we did is we inconvenienced not only the fans, but what we did is we took money from a infrastructure right and i say it's all connected to white supremacy i mean you know the owner is cool but i'm and i'm not not saying that he has ties to white supremacy but it's a system right Mm -hmm. we're all in this system that all realize if it's not white supremacy it's the one percenters right so that moment that we did and it was so organic how we shut down sacramento it was about creating this lens for the people to see if we just take back Right. Take back what is ours, which is the power we could shut down their systems. So that was just kind of like a preview. 
to be honest with you. When you have a place that seats 17,000 plus and there was less than a thousand concession stands, merchandise, uh, restaurants, right? You still got to pay those people working. You still have to refund. If that wasn't an economic punch in the face, I don't know what was. Right. And I think that right there, it spoke volumes to what the people will do to say there is a problem with this system. The system is not for everyone. This system has been oppressing people. So I think when you talk about what's next, there's so many different things because we're just not coming from an aspect of, okay, we're just going to protest and we're just going to annoy folks or we just want to protest. We just want to yell. We want to protest and be in cops face. That's not it. It's the fact that we know that there's going to be systematic changes that need to happen ASAP as well as policies change in the policing. So by raising this awareness, by me even talking to you, if we didn't pull a move like that, if we didn't go 10 days straight yesterday, was probably the only day that we didn't protest some folks were celebrating chasing down the white bunny i wasn't <laughs> i was just kind of <laughs> like good let me chill out right. but i think it opens up the idea of what really change could be and change isn't comfortable but change is necessary so i i feel like what is to come it depends on what is actually the police going to say what's sac pd going to say because there's so much more to this story that is yet to come out you see the autopsy and how we moved from with the autopsy we just buried the young man so now it's Waiting for the DA. What you going to do? You going to press them? You going to put some charges out there? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. What are you going to sit there and say now? What story are you going to flip? April 10th, I know the chief of police has to give a report and the city council members, um, especially the mayor, has some questions. So a lot of this stuff evolves around what is going to be their next move. I do know that we're going to continue to pressure on the DA. I'll let you know if she's listening to it or anybody or her correspondents are listening to it. We are making it known that she will not be reelected. If there's a mission that we are all taking on as community organizers and folks that are on the ground, we are making sure that she does not get reelected. You know, that's on the top of our Christmas list. Right. She has to pay. Barry Axius, thank you for uh, doing what you're doing, fighting for change here and and talking to us today. I just want to say one more thing just to the folks that are listening that do want to support. I say continue to share the story. Continue to check the white privilege that some of these folks have continue to be compassionate because I don't think anybody deserves to lose a child like that. Uh, this young man was 22 years old, regardless of what he's done in the past or, or what he might've been involved with. He had an opportunity to, to change. He, he deserved more life than just 22. His babies deserve to have their father. He got two kids that no longer have their father and you can never come back from that. So let's have a little bit more compassion and understanding that if you're pro police, I get it, but no life should be taken over thinking that they had a cell phone, right? And at the same yeah, time, if we're yeah. training these police officers and we want to feel protected, everyone should feel protected, not just one side of people. It should be everyone's protected. So continue to share the story, continue to have the tough conversations, and continue to check racism and punch it right in the face. I like that. It's good advice. Thank you again for talking with us today. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate it. And hope you guys have me again. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. On the pod today, we have the host 
of Crooked Media is with friends like these, Anna Marie Cox. Anna, welcome back to the program. It is good to be back. I've missed you guys. I mean, I, I see you every day in Slack, but it's not the same. It's not the same at so. all. I missed you too. We didn't know you'd been at CPAC this whole time. You just got <laughs> home today. <laughs> Last we spoke to you, you were at CPAC. What do you think of Slack? <laughs> I think it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, as someone who works from home, like Slack is like the closest thing I have to a water cooler. So hmm. it sort of makes me feel not invisible, which is mm. nice. But, you know, it is also probably bad to like look at the computer for interaction. Uh, CPAC, yeah, I have not been at CPAC this entire time. I've been thinking about CPAC almost this entire time, Oof. which is kind of sad and scary. But I think that uh, the whole team put a lot of that to good use. I'm really, really happy with how um, the documentaries shaped up. So you are just kicking off the second season of With Friends Like These, which is very exciting. Yeah. So tell us about what you are trying to achieve with the second season, what's different, what's new. Well, I think the second season, well, we're kicking off with something that I hope we're going to do more of, which is this radio documentary, which I did a little bit of in the first season, um, went to go talk to people standing in line for Hillary book event. And I also went to a Trump rally, as you guys might recall. Mm. That episode was also pretty intense. I do want to talk to people across the ideological spectrum, but it seems like what I'm really good at is talking to people <laughs> that I disagree with. So I probably will do some more of that. I was thinking about going to maybe um, one of the evangelical conventions where actually I agree on a lot of stuff with those folks, but probably not politics. And I'm very curious about them as well. And I think that this season we're going to really do more with the audience, actually. We have throughout the last season featured listener questions, people submitting questions about relationships and politics uh, via audio or email. And I think we're going to do more of that because I think, I mean, just to judge by the response I get on Twitter, the response I get on the street, the responses I get via email, uh, people are really hungry for I'm not going to say answers because I don't have answers, but I think they're hungry for conversation about conversation, maybe, mm. um, or how to have conversations. They're seeking guidance on how to kind of stumble through the world we live in now, which has a lot of places to stumble, whether it's talking about policy differences and politics differences with someone who you know you disagree with. Or the more subtle stuff that comes up around, you know, privilege and intersectionality and whiteness and what to do and say in situations where you don't feel comfortable. And you took that first spin at CPAC. <laughs> That's the, so the, the first episode is about CPAC and you talked to Dave Weigel as well, right? Yep. And the second episode is about CPAC as well. Um, hopefully, we're still putting it together. It's a little bit more looking forward about what might come from CPAC. This was a real kind of postcard from it as it is today, which was a real surprise to me. I, I mean, I tell the story in the episode, but I've been going to CPAC for over 10 years. And I've always found the people there to be you know, I disagree with them, but there was something kind of noble about their misguided ambitions in a way. Like they were idealists and mm -hmm. I really identify with idealists. And while there have always been racists there as well and sexists there as well, this past year was the first CPAC I've been to in the Trump era. And I didn't have to look for the racists and the sexists. Do you think that it's drawing different people or do you think it's Trump has permission for the same people to tell you more about themselves? I think it's a little of both. I do think it's different people. I think there are different kinds of young people attracted to the conservative movement right now. I think the conservative movement of the past 10 years or so, for one thing, there was a real libertarian aspect to it. Uh, the Ron Paul era of American conservatism, which didn't ever get like, you know, he never gathered much steam. But if you went to CPAC, you would have sworn he was going to be the next president. Yeah. You know, Ron Paul and Rand Paul won CPAC straw polls year after year after year. And to me, like, I've always found something kind of like, like I said, sort of misguided but sweet about libertarians. Like, they, oh, man, they believe in the market. It's cute, right? <laughs> <Yep>. um, <laughs> and usually, like, they're kind of gamer types, you know, um, who do speech and debate. And those are the guys that I went to high school with and actually really, you know, were my friends in high school. So I felt like I understood them. And... 
these guys might be speech debate gamer types as well, but there's a cruel streak to them that I do not remember um, from my general sense of attendees in the past. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Like you see that online all the time. It's like the alt-right as their reason for being is like triggering liberals and like they're everywhere. But it's not like what was amazing about the episode to me is it's not like you sought out just people in MAGA hats with like divisive rhetoric on a sign. Like you, you pulled a young woman over to talk to you because she was dressed cool and seemed young and interesting. And all of a sudden she was telling you wildly racist things and about how women I want a white supermajority. I, I mean, I, I yeah. my jaw dropped listening to this. Yeah, I almost wish I could have run the entire interview with her because so she was dressed kind of like a riot girl, which was my jam, <laughs> you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Like, I totally had some of those same, you know, pieces of clothing in my wardrobe when I was a kid. And so I pulled her aside and, and before I turned on the microphone, she actually did this thing. She was like, oh, I'm not very articulate. I don't, wanna, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I always, you know, I always screw things up. And I actually gave her this little feminist pep talk about don't talk down about yourself you know you can do this (laughs) probably a mistake Anna gonna gonna say that I mean there's only so many of those you get to give yeah then Lenny Reifstahl showed up and just let rip (laughs) Lenny Reifstahl meets the Lenny letter that was her yes Um, (laughs) that's funny that's good this is some erudite stuff (laughs) yeah um and she was she was a racist not not just a racist she was she was a white supremacist um and then uh i talked to a young muslim woman who was like pro-muslim ban like i wasn't pulling people aside who necessarily had maga hats on i was just kind of like somewhat randomly i wanted to make sure to get a lot of women right and i still got the answers that i got and it was profoundly disturbing i have not been so disturbed by a cpac ever and this was right up there with going to a trump rally it was a trump rally i mean it was that is what has happened to CPAC. Sometimes the hardest magahata find is the one that people wear on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about a story in the news today, uh, partly because you speak to so many Trump voters, Trump supporters. Jonathan Chait wrote uh, the cover piece in the New York Magazine, and the headline is "Corruption, Not Russia, Is Trump's Greatest Liability." And basically says, you know, Trump's core proposition to the public was a business deal. If he became president, he would work to make them rich. Remember, we all remember his line, you know, um, I've been greedy my whole life, but now I'm going to be greedy for you. And, you know, Chait's argument is now that the deep corruption of this administration has been exposed and is being exposed every single day, that this might actually be a liability for him among people who voted for him. What do you think about that argument? He's still yeah, that that thirty five percent. I don't know. Yeah, no, you know, I think that's right. I, <laughs> yeah, 35% I, I, they're so. gonna they admire his grift, you know, even when it doesn't directly benefit them. I mean, there's just a shamelessness to it that is kind of appalling. And then on top of that, just to go back to CPAC, there is just virulent racism at the bottom of a lot of this. Mm. I mean, just straight up white supremacy and he can grift all he wants as long as he is making them feel good about hating people of color and people who are different than they are you know lgbtq people they're gonna you know chant his name it's terrifying i mean this is how authoritarian regimes work right this is how fascism works his corruption is is a value add for some of them but the real thing that they admire and then they want is that permission structure to engage in their worst instincts. I do think this will have an effect with some people who either stayed home or were kind of reluctant Trump voters. Yeah. I always think about like there's the 35 percent that I'm sure were represented pretty well at CPAC. <laughs> and then there's like the from 35 to 46 <laughs> percent. You know, where he eventually got the his popular vote margin or whatever it was in the low 40s. And I wonder about those people, the, you know, Trump, not the Trump fans, but sort of the Trump voters. And these might have been people who liked Bernie in the primary, or they might be third party voters in 2016, or like you said, people who ended up staying home. And I do wonder if the corruption message with them has some pull. I think it does. But, you know, there's just I've been listening to a lot of podcasts um, about uh, actually social psychology lately. Mm. 
and a lot about why people disagree and why people believe what they do. And there's just a ton of social science that shows that people dig in on their beliefs. Like that's how we're wired, basically. Like we are wired, you know, to recognize patterns and to be fearful. And when you put those two things together, you get kind of conspiracy things and you get digging in and doubling down. And that's what's going on. You know, these people who already believe him will never want to admit they were wrong. And they'll just keep going further down the rabbit hole with him rather than admit they were wrong. Well, that's something to look forward to. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, (laughs) happy spring, guys. (laughs) Um, Well, we are very much looking forward to season two of With Friends Like These. And the first episode is up now. It's CPAC part one then, I guess. So everyone go check it out. Gotta listen to it. It's it's, it's great. It's great. Disturbing, but incredibly well done. Yeah. So. Yeah. Be ready. Have some sort of self care ready for yourself. You know, afterwards. Uh, you know, fluffy animal of some kind, or a bath. But yeah, like definitely, it's yeah, good stuff. All right, Anna. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you. Thanks, to Anna Marie Cox and Barry Axius for joining us today. That's all we have. We'll be in Clearwater Thursday night, and uh, that pod will be out first thing Friday morning. Second, we download it from that jet ski. <laughs> Bye, everyone. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD, streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.